Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning. And we uh, find ourselves in John 15. And as we have said numerous times in this study, in John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 16 constitute Jesus' final words to his disciples before his crucifixion. And in that regard, the Lord is touching on some of the most important things he has shared with them over the course of his three-and-a-half-year ministry, a kind of highlights reel, if you will. In many ways, these verses this morning capture that idea and summarize some of the most important teachings Jesus wanted to share with his closest men before the cross. So let's look at verse 14 where the Lord said, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. Now, when Jesus called his disciples his friends, if you do whatever I command you, understand that this wasn't a conditional statement based on our obedience to him. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, you're only going to be my friends if you keep my commandments. If you don't keep my commandments, you're not going to be my friends. He's using friends here as a synonym for genuine born-again believers in him. Remember that much of what Jesus said on this last night before his crucifixion revolved around the events of that evening. The evening started in the upper room with them uh, uh, pre uh, preparing and, and observing the Passover. But during that time, Judas left to carry out his betrayal of Christ. And that really formed the basis for much of what came after, much of what Jesus said after that. Much of what he said was contrasting the true with the false, the genuine with the counterfeit, the real disciples of Christ with guys like Judas, who followed the Lord, was even an apostle. Went out with the twelve, uh, you know, preached the gospel, healed the sick, uh, even cast out demons. But he was not a real disciple. He was not really saved. Jesus told us that in John 6 and in chapter 13. So much of what Jesus is saying is contrasting the true with the false. Therefore, when he said, you're my friends, if you keep my commandments and do what I tell you, he wasn't saying, look, if you're a Christian, but you don't really walk with me and keep my commandments, you're not my friend. He's saying, look, true Christians, true believers, they love me. I know them. They keep my word. Didn't he say that in chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Perfectly? No, of course not. But the general pattern of a true believer is that they will follow Jesus Example, they will do what he has commanded us to do. They're not going to come to church Sunday and uh, listen to a message and go out and live for the devil all week long thinking they're, they're covered because they're, they went to church. This is the idea, guys. Now, the only other person in the Bible who was called the friend of God was Abraham, who believed God and was saved. James tells us this in James chapter 2, verse 23, where James said in the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, for salvation. And he was called the friend of God. Again, the idea here of being a friend of God, a friend of Jesus, who is God, is that you're saved. It's not a conditional statement. It's a statement of position. When you give your heart to Christ, positionally, you're placed in Christ. You are now considered by the Lord his friend. Look. It's one thing to call somebody important your friend, right? People may or not believe you. But when someone important calls you their friend, that's really special. Think about this. How does it make you feel that the creator of the universe has chosen to call you a close personal friend? How does it make you feel that out of the entire human race, Jesus chose you to be one of his friends? Now, sometimes earthly friends can be fickle. They can be disloyal. They can even turn against you and betray you, even as Judas was doing at that very moment Jesus was speaking here. 
But Jesus is a friend who will never leave you, forsake you, and will never turn against you. He is the one that Proverbs 18.24 says is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is a friend who has proven his love for you and me, of course, by the supreme test of dying for us. Didn't he say that in chapter 15, verse 13? Jesus said, greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Remember, guys, that before we got saved and were called the friends of God, we were at one point unsaved and called the enemies of God. To really understand and appreciate what Jesus is doing by calling you and I friends, you have to understand that before we were his friends, we were his enemies, right? Remember what he said in, what Paul said in Romans 5. Why don't you turn there quickly? Romans 5, we'll just read verses 8 and 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Listen, if God loved us while we were still his enemies, so much so that Christ died for us, how much more does God love us now that we are his friends, is the idea. Now look, some people have a kind of a problem with this idea of being God's friend. And they'll say, you know, maybe you're thinking that. Well, wait a minute, I, I thought I was a child of God. Well, you are. Well, I thought I was a, a servant of God. Well, certainly you, certainly you are. I'm uncomfortable calling God my friend because it seems to put me on his level as an equal. First of all, understand that when God, in this case Jesus, calls you his friend, he isn't saying you're like his buddy. I've heard a lot of unbelievers who have kind of read the Bible and come away with some very interesting interpretations. And maybe you've heard an unbeliever who is kind of, kind of religious in a way. And, uh, you know, they read about Jesus calling them friends, which they aren't until they get saved, but they think they are. And so, you know, God's my buddy. Kind of like when one of their buddies shows up at their front door and they invite him in to have a beer and watch the game. They kind of think of Jesus that way. Look, let me just set the record straight. Jesus is not your buddy. He's not your bro. He's not like I saw one young Christian girl making t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. He isn't that kind of friend. The idea of being a friend of God doesn't negate, listen, very important, doesn't negate our reverence for him, our worship of him, or our subservience to him. He is still God, our God. He's still our master. He's still the one who controls our lives. So why did Jesus call us his friends? He said that because it was his way of saying to these disciples and all of us by extension, that we have entered into with him a brand new relationship than the folks of the old covenant period had with God. Those of us who are New Testament disciples, Christians, under the new covenant, we have a special relationship with God that Moses, Abraham, Isaiah, none of the Old Testament saints really had with him. First of all, let me just say this. In that culture, no master would die for one of his slaves. Nor would he tell his slaves what he was doing because it was none of their business. They didn't have that kind of relationship, a slave with his master. And even though we are called Jesus' slaves throughout the New Testament, in fact, in John 15, when he says, I no longer call you servants, but friends, he uses the Greek word doulos, or the plural is doulai, which is the word for slave or slaves. In fact, every place in the New Testament where the word servant appears, servant, bondservant, and so on, it's always the word doulos. It always means slave. That's important because we have a relationship with him where he's the master and I'm the slave. If he's the master or the boss and I'm the servant or the employee, it, it, it doesn't communicate the same thing. 
because you can only serve one boss. A lot of folks have two jobs. They serve multiple bosses. But you can only serve one master because you can only be the slave of one master. And that's why it makes it's important we understand that, right? But even though we are called Jesus' slaves throughout the New Testament, our overall relationship with him is much more intimate than was a slave to his master back then. There's a unity and a oneness that we have with Jesus, listen, that transcends every other human relationship. And I mean every other human relationship. Something Jesus stressed with the concept of us abiding in him earlier in John 15, and now revisits and stresses once again with the idea that we are his friends. That's why Jesus told his disciples that their relationship with him was, again, much more intimate than that of a master and a slave. They understood that. They understood slavery. They lived in a culture that uh, back then it was estimated that the Roman Empire had 60 million slaves. Uh, everyone knew what it meant to be a slave. They all knew people that owned slaves and so on. But Jesus was stressing to his disciples that we have a even though he's the master and I'm the slave, we have a relationship that transcends what they knew as master-slave relationship back then. Again, no master in that culture would ever die for us, one of his slaves. Yet not only did Jesus die for us, listen, he shared his heart with us, his will with us, and his work with us. We call it the Great Commission. The mission he came to start, he has given over to his church to continue. Didn't he say that in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, and I'm giving you the authority now. The work that the Father called me to do, I have begun, but that work is not finished. I'm sending you into all the world now to preach the good news to every person, and uh, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, and so on. Teach them all things I have taught you. See, Jesus brought us into a partnership with him. A master never partnered with his slaves. But we have this unique relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where the work he began, he turned over to his church, and we are continuing. That's a pretty hefty responsibility when you think about it. Look, understand our relationship with him is based on and made possible through our faith. That's true. But our intimacy with him, which means our practical daily fellowship, is predicated upon our ongoing obedience to all he has commanded us to do. Look, you can be a Christian and still be very carnal. There are carnal Christians. Folks that are genuinely saved, but they're not really following Jesus. They're not really living in such a way they honor him with their life. They're living for themselves pretty much, their flesh. They're saved, but they're not, they don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus because they don't really... Try to walk with him in obedience. Look, we're never going to obey the Lord perfectly. We know that, this side of glory. But when you have a heart that wants to obey all that Jesus has said, because you want to draw close to him more and more every day, it breeds intimacy. Carnal Christians, you know, I, I don't know their heart. I'm assuming that if they're calling themselves Christians, that they really are. I don't know. But if there are carnal Christians. And yet, I, I see them living more for the world than for the Lord. Uh, very sad. Jesus is basically telling his disciples here, guys, that our friendship with him is a positional truth, listen, with practical implications. Because when you obey him and walk with him, you're going to be blessed by him. You're going to be used by him. There's going to be fruit. There's going to be all kinds of awesome things that he's going to do in and through your life. He's not going to do through a carnal Christian. Carnal Christians live on the shelf. When God has an important work to do, he doesn't dust Harry off, who's been on the shelf for 10 years, and say, well, here, I need you to go here and do this. He looks around for those who are serving, those who are living for him, and says, okay, go over here, do this, and so on. That's an exciting way to live. Now, I want you to understand this whole idea of being Jesus' friend, okay? When you hear Jesus say, as my disciples, you're my friends, you might be prone to think, yeah, okay, I understand. When I got saved, I became a friend of Jesus. 
I want you to understand, though, our relationship with Jesus as his friends started long before we were saved. In fact, long before we were born. In fact, started long before time began. What are you talking about? Turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, doulos, he's a slave. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. The acknowledgement of the truth is receiving the gospel. Okay, Verse 2. In hope of eternal life which God, listen, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Time is a physical dimension that only began with the physical creation of the universe. There was no time before there was the creation, the physical creation, right? So back in eternity past, before time, before the physical creation, God knew us and God promised us, those who would receive Christ, eternal life. Now, guys, listen, the fact that we as excuse me, that we as believers are the friends of God is based on another important truth, the foreknowledge of God. First point, the friends of God. Second point, the foreknowledge of God. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Remember, he talked quite a bit about fruit in the first eight verses of chapter 15. And we talked about bearing fruit in the Christian life. But let me say this to you. All fruit bearing in the Christian life started long before we got saved. Or were even born. It started with God choosing us. Now, guys, I would like to take the rest of our time this morning to camp on Jesus' statement, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I was telling first service that there are times in our study of God's Word that we have to get theological. We have to get into doctrine. There are a lot of folks that kind of run from doctrine. It's boring. It's uninteresting. They would rather focus on the devotional aspect of their life with, life with God, the love and the grace. And, and that's wonderful. I'm not putting that down. But you understand you can't fully uh, understand God, in a sense, you can't really live for God unless you learn what God has said in his word about our faith, about himself, right? The idea is that we learn to live. And there's a lot of churches that run from doctrine because, again, it's not interesting to a lot of people, and their goal is to keep people in the seats or in the pews. So they tend to water that stuff down and just go right for the application or the devotional aspects of a, of a passage. But you cheat people out of the deeper things of God. It's the doctrine that you fall back on in the toughest times of your life. It's not the feelings. Because you don't have feelings, positive feelings, at that moment. Okay? We must understand doctrine. So this morning, I'd like you to put on your little, put on your little thinking caps. All right? We're going to have a little course in theology. Not that I'm so great at teaching it. I Hopefully I'll communicate what I feel God wants me to communicate with you in a way you'll understand it. Uh, if it's not kind of scratching where you're itching, that's okay. Force yourself to, to listen because it's important, okay? This morning I like to camp on the statement of Jesus, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now guys, upon saying this, I think Jesus' disciples must have looked at each other somewhat puzzled by that statement. You see, in their minds, each of them had decided to follow Jesus and become one of his disciples. They decided, in their minds, they chose him. He didn't choose them. What they no doubt didn't grasp at that point was the sovereignty of God. All right? I mean, they weren't even spirit-filled at this point. So Jesus was keeping it very simple. But I'm sure at this point, they did not grasp the sovereignty of God, 
and how God had chosen them to be saved and to serve him long before they were ever born again, before time began. Of course, the immediate context of what Jesus said here was that these men didn't choose to be Jesus' apostles. He chose them for that ministry. I understand that, right? We could paraphrase it, I'm sure. Uh, you didn't choose me to be apostles. I chose you, right? I think that was the immediate application to the words he said. But I also believe the ultimate idea behind the statement that they didn't, they didn't choose Jesus, he chose them, was a positional truth that started long, long ago. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And keep your finger here because we're going to revisit this a couple times before we move on. You are my friends. Great. When did that happen? When they got saved? No. In eternity past when he chose them and all of us right Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 Paul said just as he chose us in him God chose us to be in Christ listen before the foundation of the world so before the physical universe was created that we should be holy and without blame before him in love you know what he's saying there Paul is saying that we were chosen before the foundation of the world to bear fruit what is the fruit? Well, here it's being saved and living a holy life, okay? And there's other things to bearing fruit. We've talked about that in our study uh, in John 15, 1 to 8. But guys, Jesus makes it clear that we didn't choose God. People have a problem with that. Oh, I chose God. I came to God. I found God. God wasn't lost. You didn't find God. He found you. The good shepherd goes out looking for lost sheep, right? The sheep are too stupid to look for the shepherd. But they respond, didn't we? We thought we, we, thought we initiated the whole process. Actually, we were only responding to what God was doing, right? Let me just say this, because we'll get back to that for a second. Um, but again, Jesus makes it clear we didn't choose God. He chose us in eternity past. And at the right moment in time, he called us. And we responded and were saved. Now, the Apostle Peter tells us that we were elected, elected by God, according to his foreknowledge. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. The word elect can also be translated chosen. It's the exact same Greek word that Paul used in Ephesians 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us for eternal life in him before the foundation of the world. On what basis did God choose or elect us for eternal life? Was it on the basis of our internal goodness or outward works? Well, no, because Paul, again, says it was before time began. We weren't even around. We had no internal goodness, which we still don't have, except what God put there through Christ. And we had no works because we weren't even created yet. Peter tells us that God chose or elected us to salvation according to his foreknowledge. Foreknowledge comes from a Greek word that literally means knowledge known in advance. Foreknowledge simply means knowledge known in advance. Only God knows all things in advance. God knows the end from the beginning. God is outside of time. He's not. He created time. He's not subject to it. For God, everything is happening in the eternal present tense. He sees Adam and Eve in the garden. He sees Jesus Christ on the throne in the kingdom because he knows the end from the beginning, right? And he especially knew all of us and knew we were going to blow it before he ever created anything. God knew we were going to blow it. Surprise, surprise. God knew we were, some people think, okay, when Adam, God had a plan and put Adam and Eve in the garden and he had a plan of what was going to happen and then they blew it. And now God had to frantically run around and come up with a, another plan, plan B. Because, you know, I, I didn't realize Adam and Eve were going to mess up like this. Now what am I going to do? Oh, I got to put this other, and there are people, and I forgot the exact term, 
I think it's called open theism, where there are folks who believe God doesn't know the future. He sees time unfolding in front of him, and he responds to everything we do. Oh, they did this. I got to do this, right? Oh, look at that. They, they did that. I got to go over here and do this. What kind of a God would that be to worship? A neurotic running around God trying to fix everything we broke. It's important that we understand this. The Greek word for, for knowledge is prognosis. We get our English word prognostication from that Greek word. Of course, prognostication means the action of foretelling or prophesying future events. God knows everything that is going to happen in the future because he's outside of time and he sees it happening right before him. But prognostication, the action of foretelling or prophesying future events. Now, those who are Calvinists, and I'm going to pick on Calvinists right now. I, I, I have Calvinists that I know and love. Many of my favorite authors are Calvinists. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of wonderful Calvinists. That, some of the greatest Christians in the history of the church have been Calvinists. So this is not about us versus them. We good, they bad. That's not what I'm saying. I just differ with them on some key points of theology. Okay? I expect fully to see them in heaven someday, although I, I doubt whether they expect to see me. <laughs> if you know any Calvinists, you know how that works. As a non-Calvinist, you're far more gracious to them than they are to us. All right, that's another message. Um, but Calvinists say that the Greek word foreknowledge actually means foreordination. In other words, God only knows the future because he has foreordained the future. He knows the future because he has predetermined the future including all those who would be saved. You see, it wasn't that God just knew in advance, foreknowledge. That's what foreknowledge means, to know in advance, right? It wasn't just that God knew in advance what was going to happen, those who would be saved and those who wouldn't be saved. Listen, Calvinists believe he predestined some to be saved and the others to be damned. You know, a lot of Christians have a problem with the doctrine of predestination. However, it is taught in the Bible, so it is a biblical doctrine. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, let's read verses 4 and 5 this time. Paul said, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Again, the whole idea of predestination troubles a lot of people, but the reason for much of that confusion is because much of it comes from not properly understanding what predestination really is, what it means. The word predestination comes from a Greek word that literally means to predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. Let me say it again. Predestination literally means to predetermine or to plan beforehand a person's destiny, whether they spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Now, that's the straightforward, strict definition. It's not hard to understand, right? The problem comes when we try to figure out upon what basis does God predetermine someone's destiny. Is it based entirely upon his sovereign will or upon our free will? Look, extreme or hyper-Calvinists believe that in eternity past, God chose some to be predestined to eternal life in heaven, and others he predestined to spend eternity in hell. It's called the doctrine of reprobation. Not all Calvinists believe in the doctrine, but that they're trying to soften what it, Calvinism is really teaching. And we'll talk about that a little more next week, okay? But... Extreme or hyper-Calvinists believe that in eternity past, God predestined some to go to heaven, and some, many, he predestined to go to hell. All of this was decided by God alone before any of us were ever born, created, and without any free will on our part, listen, to choose where we wanted to spend eternity, what our 
eternal destiny was going to be. In other words, we are nothing but puppets. Now, they wouldn't put it this way, but this is exactly what they're teaching. Calvinists basically teach that we are nothing but puppets and God is the puppet master. He makes us behave in certain ways because he's pulling the strings. We don't have a free will to do anything apart from what he has ordained. So he's up there pulling the strings and I'm dancing to whatever dance he wants me to dance. He makes us behave in certain ways and, listen, causes us to believe in or to not believe in his son. And we have no choice in the matter. We have no choice in the matter. Calvinists is such an extreme or an excessive view of God's sovereignty that they don't believe that unbelievers even have, listen, the capacity to believe in Jesus on their own. They believe that God has to give them the faith to believe if they're going to be saved. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You all know it, verses 8 and 9. Where Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, Calvinists interpret Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to mean that not only does salvation come from God as a gift, but so does the faith to believe. Even the faith to believe is also a gift from God. They reason that if we had free will and could choose to believe in Jesus, well, they consider that to be a work and we can't be saved by our works. That's why they believe we don't even have the faith to believe. Because in their mind, in their theology, if you had faith to believe, and it was a, 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 about exercising your free will to accept Christ or reject him, if you didn't exercise your free will to accept Christ, that would be a work. You can't be saved by, we can't be saved by works, therefore, we don't even have the faith to believe. But is that true? Look, I agree with the last part of that argument that God only saves us by His grace apart from anything we can ever do to try to earn salvation. Ephesians 2.9 It's not by works, lest any should boast. However, the problem I have is with the first part of that argument that places believing or the exercising of faith into the category of works, which it is clearly not. Turn to Romans 4. Romans 4, verse 2. Listen to the argument Paul makes. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Or in other words, he was saved. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, you work all week for an employer, right? A boss, and he or she at the end of the week hands you a check and says, what? Here's a gift? What do you say? A gift? I don't know, a gift? I work for that. That's my wage. And that's the idea or the, the argument Paul's presenting. If salvation was uh, a reward, a wage for you working for salvation, it couldn't be considered a gift. God calls it a gift, though which means it's something you don't deserve, right? He goes on to say, verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but what? Believes. You know how, see how he separates the two? He separates works from faith. But he who does not work, but believes on him who, on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Look, Paul here separates faith from works and doesn't include it in the category of works. Very important. Let's think about this for a moment. How can simply receiving God's gift of salvation, salvation by our faith be considered a work? I mean, since when is receiving a gift a meritorious act? Meritorious means an act deserving honor. Let me illustrate it this way. Say I am destitute. 
I'm, I'm very poor, but I'm also very sick. And if I don't get an operation soon, I'm going to die. But I have no money for an operation. I, I have no, I'm destitute. And then one day a very wealthy man hears of my plight and hands me a check that will cover the entire operation. In a very real sense, he is offering me salvation from death by giving me a gift of life, right? Now listen, is my reaching out and receiving the check a meritorious act? Will people applaud the one who receives the gift? Or the one who gives the gift freely out of mercy, love, and grace? I think we know the answer to that, right? Look, I disagree with the Calvinists who believe that receiving God's gracious gift of eternal life through our faith is a meritorious act and therefore constitutes a work of the flesh which would then negate the grace of God. I, dis I dismiss that. I, I don't believe that at all. Now at this point, and I've talked to many Calvinists over the years, maybe you have, okay. Uh, they're not to be deterred. They come right back. Okay. Because they really believe what they believe. Okay, nothing wrong with that. But at this point, Calvinists would argue that an unbeliever is incapable of exercising saving faith, saving faith in the first place because they're dead. They're dead. Here's how they are. Here's how the argument goes. I'm just going to read to you what I've heard Calvinists say over the years, right, with regard to this. They'll tell you the Bible says that unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins. A corpse can't believe unless God resurrects it. So neither can unbelievers exercise faith unless God regenerates them first and then gives them, them, gives them the faith to believe in Christ. Let me just say this first. In the Bible, regeneration is another way of saying salvation. They essentially mean the same thing. So in, Catholic, excuse me, in Calvinist theology, pick on the Catholics another day, in Calvinist theology, here's what they're, they're teaching. That a person has to get saved before they can be saved. What do you mean? They have to be regenerated because they're dead in trespasses and sins. They have to be regenerated, which the Bible calls salvation, before they can even have the ability to believe. But even then, God's got to give them the faith, right? So in Calvinist theology, a person has to get saved before they can get saved. Now, that's not only confusing, it's just flat-out unbiblical. Again, much of this is based on Ephesians 2, verse 1, which says that before we got saved, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Here's the argument that Calvinists make, and it's, on the face of it, a very powerful argument. In fact, I have seen several people that were, that were converted to the Calvinist way of thinking because of this very argument. Here's what it is. The Calvinists liken spiritual death to physical death. They equate the two. So physical death, they equate with spiritual death. And since a physical corpse can't believe, then neither can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins believe, since they are, spirit, they are a spiritual corpse. That sounds, on the face of it, like a par very powerful, airtight argument. Okay? Can a physical corpse believe? No. If they're ever going to believe, God would have to raise them, right? Well, unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins. How can they believe, right? They're dead. God's got to raise them from the dead, regenerate them, and then they can have the faith to believe, which he gives them. Again, on the face of it, that seems like an airtight argument. But if we stop to carefully think it through, the argument falls apart. While it is true that a physical corpse can't believe, it's also true a physical corpse can't sin, right? If you're going to equate physical death with spiritual death, then you would have to say, well, yeah, okay, somebody who's dead in trespasses and sin, spiritually dead, if they can't believe, well, then neither can they sin. No Calvinist would ever say an unbeliever can't sin. Look, when the Bible talks about unbelievers and it says that they are dead in trespasses and sins, 
In that context, spiritual death means separation, not annihilation. Let me say it again. In that context, to be dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God, right? Which is what the fall did. God made Adam and Eve in fellowship with him. They sinned in the garden and they were separated from God. Calvinists say that means that anything before that was annihilated, blown to pieces. They, they have nothing of free will, nothing of what it was like in the garden when they had fellowship with God. But I don't believe it means annihilation. I believe it means separation. And by that I mean they are separated from God. Just like Jesus was trying to communicate with the branches, the branch and the vines, uh, the vine and the branches. If the branches are disconnected from the vine, there's no life from the vine flowing through into them, bearing fruit, right? Unbelievers are separated from God. They have no life of God flowing through them. They can't bear spiritual fruit. They're unbelievers. The question is, do they have any capacity left to still believe? To still act like God? You know, like Adam and Eve did before they... What does the term godly mean? God-like, right? Someone who is acting godly doesn't necessarily mean they're a believer. They can be an unbeliever, manifesting certain traits and characteristics, attributes uh, that they receive from God that haven't been blown to pieces, haven't been annihilated, where they're now just simply an old, uh, a uh, fallen, sinful nature. No. There is still enough residual God-likeness in them that they can do a lot of things that their fallen nature would never think about doing. What do I mean? Well, unbelievers can still show love to strangers. They can show kindness and mercy and unselfishness to others. All these are attributes of God, right? They can even demonstrate self-sacrifice by laying down their lives for others in the battlefield or as police officers or firefighters, right? These qualities don't come from their sinful fallen nature. They come from that part of them that still reflects the God in whose image they were created. It's still there. Distorted, yes, but destroyed, no, right? Man was made in the image of God. And that image has been greatly distorted because of sin. But it hasn't been eradicated altogether. Let me use this illustration. You're walking uh, down some uh, country road on a very warm but very calm summer day. You come to a pond. I mean, it's so calm. Nothing is moving, right? You look into that pond and you see your reflection clearly, right? Drop a rock into that pond and then all the, wa you know, the waves and the ripples. And you still see your reflection, but it's greatly distorted, right? When God first made us, he looked into the human race because he made us in his own image, and he saw his own reflection. When sin entered into the human race, it greatly distorted that image of God's character. But it hadn't destroyed it altogether. Again, we can still act, even as unbelievers, in ways that are only attributable to God himself, never would come from our sinful fallen nature. And I believe, guys, it's that part of a person, even unsaved, that can still choose to do good and ultimately the same part of their being that can choose to believe in Jesus if they want to. It's called free will and it was not annihilated at the fall. Let me end by saying this. I think this is an important subject to revisit next week. I've got a lot more I want to say and you might be thinking, oh no, not another Sunday of theology, but Come on back. But let me just say this in closing. If it were true that God had to spiritually resurrect unbelievers, regenerate them, and give them faith to be saved because they have no capacity to believe in Jesus since they are dead in trespasses and sins, if that were true, then listen to me. Very simple, just logic. I'll throw it out there. If that were true, then all of the invitations from God to come and be saved in the Bible would be nothing more than hypocrisy on his part. Think about that. All right? Why? Well, because first of all, 
if he's making an invitation to come and get saved to people he hasn't chosen, right? I mean, they have no capacity to respond to that invitation to be saved. They have no way to believe since God has not given them faith to believe. He's withheld it from them, correct? And that makes this invitation to these folks nothing but a phony invitation. It's a deception, really. They have no free will to accept his offer. So it's not an invitation that means anything, right? I mean, if I invite you over to my house Friday, my wife and I should say, invite you over to my, if I do that and just invite you on my own and don't tell her I get in trouble. <laughs> she likes to know these things because, you know, she wants to make sure everything looks nice. But if I invite you over to my house, our house, to have dinner Friday night, that implies free will. I'm giving you an invitation. You have, you have the free will to say, well, yeah, I'd like to come. I'll be there. Or, no, I can't make it. I'm leaving it up to you, though. That's what's implicit in an invita in a uh, invitation. A person's free will to accept or reject, right? The same is true when God is offering eternal life to people. But if Calvinists are right, and God is giving invitations in the Bible, but folks he hasn't chosen, well, that's not a legitimate invitation. They don't have a free will to say yes or no. But it's also not a legitimate invitation to those whom he has chosen to be in heaven someday. It's also a phony invitation because he really isn't inviting them. Listen, he really isn't inviting them to come and be saved, which again implies free will to accept or reject his offer. Listen, he is dragging them irresistibly and forcing them to be saved. That's the I in the acronym TULIP. Calvinism can be summed up with the acronym TULIP. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Now, when I first got saved, and I would read these this TULIP, okay, I thought, well, I'm a three-point Calvinist. I didn't really understand the definitions they put to each of these terms. So after I studied Calvinism a little more and realized how they were defining these five tenets, I said, I'm a zero-point Calvinist. But in Calvinism, you don't choose Christ. If he's chosen you, he's going to drag you into salvation whether you like it or not. Now they would say, well, that's ridiculous. They're going to want to be saved if he's chosen them. Okay, but I'm just making a point. They're not choosing. They're being dragged into salvation irresistibly because this is what God has chosen. They have no choice in the matter. It's not up to them. Yet the Bible contains many, many invitations to sinners to come, get right with God, be saved, right? And this is both in the Old and New Testaments, all based on free will. I'll give you two. I mean, there's literally hundreds in the Scriptures. Ezekiel 18, God said to Israel, Turn, please turn from your sin, the idea is, and come to me for salvation. For why will you die? Now, if God, if, if Calvinists are right, God wouldn't have said this. Please, please turn from your sins. Repent, come to me that I might save you. So you escape judgment. I don't want to judge your life. I get no pleasure out of sending anyone to hell. No, he would have said something along the lines, oh, go ahead and say it, go ahead. Live it up. Because I'm going to drag you into salvation whether you like it or not one of these days. He didn't say that because it's not true. Very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17. Jesus said, let him who thirsts come. Come to me, right? And whoever desires, let him, let her come. And take the water of life freely. Receive the gospel. Receive eternal life. Come. The invitations to anyone. Anyone. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out a single person if they come to me for salvation. All this got started with trying to understand predestination, which is where God predetermines someone's eternal destiny. Predestination, where God predetermines someone's eternal destiny, whether they're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. I reject the Calvinist definition. You say, okay, well then, Phil, what's your definition? of predestination. We'll come on back next week. We will look at that and um, revisit this topic a little more. 
Um, because being Jesus' friends is connected to his foreknowledge where he predestined some to be saved, others not to be saved, but based on what? On God's capricious, sovereign will where it creates all these people? Oh, yeah, you, I'm going to accept you. Yeah, I like you. The rest of you are all going to hell. And you have nothing to do about it. Can I just say one more thing in closing? This is, this is in my mind, really is more childlike than an intellectual. I, I, I'm more childlike in the way I look at things. If God could force people to be saved, right? What Calvinists teach, that God has chosen some to be saved, and he's going to force them to come to him. If God could force, and he, let me say, God could do anything. Certainly he can force people to be saved if he wanted to, but that would be, they'd be robots. They wouldn't be exercising their free will. And, and, and God doesn't want robots to love him. He wants people who have their own free will want to be with him in heaven forever, right? But let's, for the sake of argument, if God could force people to be saved, why doesn't he just force everyone to be saved? Isn't he all loving, right? Omnibenevolent? I mean, isn't our God an all-loving God? If he's all-loving and he could force people to be saved, why does he send somebody to hell? That never made sense to me. Oh, God's under no obligation to save anybody. Wonderful. Great. Yeah, I get that. But if he is going to save people by force, why does he just save everyone by force? Nobody goes to hell. I mean, wouldn't a loving God want to keep you from going to hell if he was forcing people? No, he's inviting because free will has to be a part of that, right? So come on back next week, God willing. Unless we're raptured, then Jesus will take it over and do a much better job than me. But come on back next week, and we'll revisit this again. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your incredible grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have invited us to come you knew that we were going to accept you in eternity past but thank you lord that you invited us and by your grace we uh, responded and we thank you lord and ask that you would continue to keep blessing these studies in your word we ask all this in jesus precious name amen